Blog Talk Radio. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called Good News, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It expounds on the central message of Christianity, that Jesus Christ lived and died to save sinners. Request your free book by writing to goodnews at gty.org. That's goodnews at gty.org. And this offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2020. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you, Bible teacher John MacArthur. Obviously, this is a very special day in the life of our church family. 
It is for us um, a return to what we love the most, the fellowship of the saints and the worship of our Lord. There have been people all across the country and around the world affirming that we're gathering, thankful that we're gathering, and assigning on with us. And there have been many people who don't understand why we would do this. We understand that. We understand that the world does not understand the importance of the church. The world doesn't understand that it's not just essential, it's the only hope of eternal life for doomed sinners. People have been very concerned to make sure people's physical lives are protected and the process shut down places where there's hope for their spiritual lives to be transformed that they can live eternally in the presence of God. The Bible is very clear in describing the world of unbelievers. In Ephesians 2.1, it says they are dead in trespasses and sins, and they are children of wrath. Ephesians 4 says, they live in the futility of their mind, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Our Lord Jesus said about people outside His kingdom, they do not know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Our Lord Jesus said in John chapter 3, that they love darkness rather than light. They are doing evil, hating the light, not coming to the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. Jesus further said in the eighth chapter of John that unbelievers do not understand divine truth. They are unable to hear the words of our Lord. They do not believe. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so, and it cannot please God. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that even the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. In his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 4, Paul said the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. They are blinded in their minds by Satan. This is the divine diagnosis of the human condition, cut off from the life of God and headed toward eternal darkness. That condition is summed up perhaps as well as anywhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let me read you a few verses. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. 
But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The natural man understands not the things of God, but those who are in Christ have His mind. We understand the mysteries of the kingdom. We don't expect the world to understand us. We don't expect the world to understand how important, how essential, how singularly important the church is that proclaims the only message that can turn people from sin to God and from hell to heaven. The Bible tells us the world will not understand that. The Christian gospel, Christianity itself, is not really comprehensible to all who are in Satan's kingdom. We cannot expect them to understand the church, the Bible, the gospel. We cannot expect them to grasp the reality of Christian life and fellowship and worship. We can't expect that they would know that Christianity is not a set of rules. It's not a set of ethics. It's not a list of moral behaviors or spiritual ideas or charitable thoughts. It is the worship of the true God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. True Christians believe in and love and worship and serve the Son of God. And we confess Him as our Lord and Savior. The only Lord and Savior. Sinners must come to Him to be delivered from their sin and judgment. But the gospel is not acceptable to the fallen mind. Blinded by fallenness, blinded by the love of sin, blinded by the darkness imposed by Satan, the gospel and all it contains does not seem rational or acceptable. We believe in a God who became a man. We believe the eternal God who died by dying provided eternal life to those who were dead. We believe in a king who became a slave. We believe in a sovereign who exchanged the crown of glory in heaven for a crown of thorns on earth. We believe in a righteous judge who became a criminal, a holy God who became the sinner's defender. We believe in a just executioner of sinners who became their Savior by taking their execution. Christians believe in a holy law which provides complete freedom, a joyous freedom which is slavery to righteousness. Christians believe in a kingdom on earth with a capital in heaven. Christians believe in a little flock of innumerable saints. Christians believe they are wretched outcasts who became saints. They are enemies who became sons. They are slaves who became kings. They are poor who became wealthy. They are bankrupt souls who are given eternal riches. They are rebels who became friends. They are haters who became lovers and even lovers of those who hate them. Christians believe they are victims who became victors. 
They are strong who rejoice in their weakness. They are the despised who receive honor. They are souls who die once but live twice. They are mortals who become immortal. They are corrupt who become incorruptible. They are the sorrowful who have eternal joy. And all of these realities have come to us because the giver of life gave up his life so that those dead in sin would live forever. The glory of the gospel escapes the mind of natural man. But we have the mind of Christ. These are the truths in which we rejoice and for which we worship. We're different. Jesus put it this way. My kingdom is not of this world. We're in the world. We're not of the world. We have a king and a lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. And Scripture is crystal clear as to how we are to submit to our Lord in Romans chapter 10, familiar words, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Salvation comes to those who confess Jesus as Lord. What does it mean to say that Jesus is Lord? Well, for one thing mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, maybe easily overlooked, it says in verse 5, we are destroying speculations, ideologies, ideas, philosophies, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are in this world to take the truth to destroy the lies. Any lie lifted up against the true knowledge of God. And here's what it means to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. To say that Jesus is Lord is to take everything starting with your thoughts and your deeds as well, captive to the obedience of Christ. We obey Christ. We love Christ. We lovingly and gladly obey Him. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, For this reason also, because of His death and resurrection, God highly exalted Him, that is Christ, bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God highly exalted Christ and demanded that every conscious being in the universe bow the knee to Him as Lord. Back to Ephesians for just a moment, chapter 1. Here is the Apostle's prayer for us. Verse 15, 
For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. This is the Apostle Paul praying for the church. And what are you praying for? That the God, verse 17, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Paul's prayer for us is that we would be enlightened to understand what it is to be a Christian. And what it is to be a Christian is to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And everything is in subjection under His feet, including the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Just as a body is in submission to the head physically, so the church submits to its head the governing, ruling authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now and forever. He gave the Son. Notice that it says in verse 21 that He's far above. Huper ano. Hyper. Super high. Above. In this age and even in the age to come, eternally He is the Supreme One. Everything is in subjection to Him. John Calvin said, Hence, should anyone call us anywhere other than to follow Christ, He is empty, full of wind. Let us therefore, without concern, bid Him farewell. Jesus is Lord. That's the Christian confession, isn't it? It always has been. And we are His slaves. Gladly so. As pastors and elders, we shepherd His flock. We love His flock as He loves His flock. We care for His flock as He cares for His flock. We endeavor to protect His flock as He would protect His flock. And we feed His flock as he would feed His flock because He does all of those things 
through those under-shepherds He's placed in His church. And that is why the end of the book of Hebrews, you read this, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, instruction to believers, remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. So we are the ones who feed the church, and we are the ones called to live a life of faith that they can imitate. In the 17th verse, it goes even further than listening to their teaching and following their example. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. James said, stop being many teachers. Theirs is a greater condemnation. There is an accountability like no other accountability to those of us who lead the church. We stand accountable to God, to Christ. How we treat His sheep is how we treat Christ. The church is the flock of the Lord given to the care of under-shepherds. This is our life. This is our calling. This we must fulfill. In that same book of Hebrews, back in chapter 10, essential to fulfilling the responsibility to feed, set the example, and use the Word of God to command the character and behavior of the flock is this statement, verse 24 of Hebrews 10, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That means we need to be together, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The closer you get to the end of the age, the more meaningful assembling together is. No one should forsake that. The habit of some doing that is cause for deep and profound concern. We need to encourage each other, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. When we gather, we are to have fellowship in order to do those things. We are to greet one another with signs of warm affection. We are to sing, and you were singing at the top of your voices this morning. We are to pray. We are to fellowship. We are to take the bread and the cup and the Lord's table. We are to give. We are to read Scripture. And we are to hear it proclaimed by pastors. As the church, we do this openly because we are lights in the world. We fulfill our calling to worship and become the strongest force, in fact, the only force for truth and righteousness in the world. Everything else is bound up in the kingdom of darkness. We are the pillar and ground of the truth. We are fulfilling Christ's design when we meet, not only for our sake and for our worship, but for the world's sake 
and their desperate condition. I can't think of anything worse than to put an entire world into fear and then shut down the only place they could go to have their fear finally and completely removed. We're fulfilling our Lord's design. I want to draw your attention to what He said in Matthew 5 in the famous Sermon on the Mount. And I want to talk about this a bit. Matthew 5, verse 13. Jesus speaking to those of His disciples who were gathered with Him said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is the church influencing the world. This is not easy. We know it's not easy because before our Lord said that, Go back to verse 10 and see what He said. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Yes, we are salt and light in the world. That doesn't mean we're going to be accepted by the world. We understand that. I showed you why. The Scripture gives us a diagnosis of the human heart that makes it impossible for the world to accept us. It will not be easy. But we are the most essential force in all the world. We are, put it simply, Jesus Christ in the world. We are His body, the church, and we are the only salt and light. Salvation in Christ transforms us from being part of the decaying, corrupt, diseased world. We become salt. We're transformed from being part of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We are living influences in the world. We're the only hope. Sinners have no hope but the church. No virus should stop us. What about salt? What is our Lord saying? Well, we take salt rather lightly. No pun intended. But the Greeks used to call salt divine. Homer said it was divine. In ancient times, couples carried salt to their wedding. In Germany, brides' shoes once were sprinkled with salt. There's a French tale about a princess who came to the king and said, 
Your Majesty, I love you like salt. He was angry and banished her from the kingdom. <laughs> Story goes, he ran out of salt and realized that was an expression of love and got her back. Roman Catholic Church has had holy salt. The Romans used to say nothing's more valuable than sun and salt. Roman soldiers were paid in salt. And if a soldier was derelict in his duty, he was not paid because he wasn't worth his salt. Salt was a sign of friendship in ancient times. Today, even a man in the Arab world, when he partakes of the salt of another man in a meal, comes under that man's protection and care. We saw that, by the way, in with some of our military who were protected in the Middle East. If a man's worst enemy ate his salt, he would be obliged to be protecting. Covenants were made with salt. God speaks of a covenant of salt with David. I read about a caravan of 40,000 camels, a lot of camels, carrying salt across the Sahara. Each camel had two 200-pound blocks, and the camels went 435 miles. That's how important salt was. Wars were fought over salt. Salt was a form of currency. Salt is significant. Listen to what Leviticus 2.13 says about salt being part of a sacrifice. Every oblation of your meat offering shall you season with salt. Neither shall you allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your meat offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. And here Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. What's he talking about? Salt is used to season food. Salt is used more importantly and has been used through the centuries to preserve Ezekiel 16 talks about the fact that babies were born, they were rubbed with salt as a disinfectant. On Friday nights, the Jews dipped their Sabbath bread into salt. What is going on with this salt? Some suggest that it could mean purity because of its glistening white property. Some think it could mean flavor. Can that which has no flavor be eaten without salt? Is even a biblical comment. Those things could be true. Some suggest it has to do with the fact that salt stings, and so it is this sort of um, purifying element in society. Others suggest that salt creates thirst, and that the primary function of salt is to create thirst. If you don't have enough salt, you don't get thirsty, then you get dehydrated and death can come. That would be particularly true in some desert climates. But I think when you look at all of it, it's really the preservative character of it. We're in the world. In 
the sense of salt, the way salt has been used throughout all of human history to preserve something from corruption. We're in the world to prevent corruption, to restrain wickedness. We are the force for anti-decay. The, the holy living of believers halts the corruption. We, we hold it back to some degree. We check the rottenness of a decaying, perishing society by virtue of our lives, by virtue of the fact that we will not accept blatant, overt, godless, immoral, sinful behavior as a norm. We fight that. We retard moral degeneration if we're acting as salt. Take all the salt out and you get the great tribulation. Our presence should restrain crime. It should restrain evil. It should put a gag on vile words, wicked deeds. The church is the only preservative in society. We have to be rubbed into the world. That is to say, we have to mingle. Even salt has to dissolve to do its work. The whole world is like a rotting, putrefying, relentlessly deteriorating carcass. And we're the only moral, spiritual disinfectant. We must influence the world and not be influenced by it. There's a sense in which this is a quiet witness. The power of the influence of a godly, righteous, virtuous life in your family, in your neighborhood, at your job, your school. The power of influence holds back the corruption to some degree. But we need to be more than salt. We need to be light. We are the light of the world and we need to be set on a hill. That's why we're here today, right? This is our hill. And the light will shine. This is our calling. Salt is somewhat hidden. Salt works quietly. Light openly, visibly shatters the darkness. The influence of godly character, though quiet, is powerful, and it does retard the spread of evil. And it starts in the home where you raise godly children. But salt can't change evil into good. Only light can do that. There is no believing person 
who has made another person righteous by influence or example. Sooner or later, the light of the truth must shine. The example alone isn't going to change the sinner. Salt, in a sense, is negative. It retards corruption. Light is positive. It displays the truth that delivers from corruption. So we are salt in our character. We are light in our message. What's the danger? Oh, great danger. Salt losing its saltiness. Acquiring a kind of stale, alkaline taste, it becomes good for nothing. And light put under a basket, pointless. Salt has to be salt. Light has to be light for God's glory. I love what it was said of John the Baptist. He was a burning and shining light. Through all the history of God's redemptive work in the world, civil rulers have worked against God's people, have sought to overrule God, to abuse their sphere of power by stepping into the world of God's kingdom and trying to take authority. Pharaoh abused his authority over Israel and he was drowned. Saul overstepped the limits of his God-given sphere and lost his throne. Solomon corrupted his reign with gross immorality and destroyed the kingdom. Subsequently, all the kings of the north, Israel, were evil, and there were 19 of them in a row that came under the judgment of God. Fourteen of the 20 kings in the southern kingdom of Judah were evil, overstepped their bounds, came under the wrath of God along with the people who were their subjects. Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself above God and became a madman. Belshazzar exalted himself above God and suffered the consequences. And that, by the way, those two kings take us back to the book of Daniel. As we read, Daniel disobeyed the king because the king told him to disobey God, not to pray. He only asked for 30 days of submission, temporary mandate. Daniel threw open his windows and for those 30 days prayed publicly and openly three times a day. In the New Testament in Acts 12, Herod, the king, became proud 
overstepped his limits and instantaneously was eaten by worms. The Apostle Paul often disobeyed rulers who wanted him to deny the Lord Jesus Christ and stop preaching, and he refused to do that. And he was beaten with sticks and with whips, stoned, run out of town, put in jail, and eventually the Romans decapitated him for disobeying them to obey his God. In the book of Acts, and I want you to look at this for a moment, the apostles after the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord went about preaching boldly. And if you pick up the story in chapter 4, say at verse 13, the rulers of Jerusalem had told them to stop preaching. But they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? This is the Supreme Court of Israel. For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name, the name of Jesus. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people. They were afraid of reprisals from the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. Over in chapter 5, the story continues with the apostles in verse 17. The high priest rose up along with all his associates, the sect of the Sadducees filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles, put them in a public jail. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Go right back to the most public place and start preaching again. Orders from heaven. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the court or the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came didn't find them in the prison. They returned and reported back saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. 
Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed as, about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, Oh, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they brought them, they stood them before the council, the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Here it is. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Get that? We must obey God rather than men. Does this mean we have no responsibility to our leaders? Not at all. God has ordained human government for the peace and well-being of temporal society. Romans 13, we are to recognize the authorities are designed by God. We are to submit to them in the sphere in which God has designed them to operate. We're to do more than that. We're to honor them, show them respect. Through the years we've done that here, we continue to do that with the authorities in our city, every opportunity we have. We render to Caesar what is Caesar's. We even have been called, 1 Timothy 2, to pray for their salvation as I did this morning. When orders come, however, to us that contradict the orders of our king, we have to obey God rather than men. The feedback on this has been really wonderful. One argument continues to be made, why didn't you do this at the beginning? Number one, we didn't know the extent of the disease, the illness. We were told millions were going to die. It was just sensible and rational to be protective. As time went on, however, we found out the virus was not as deadly as predicted. And the commands not to assemble didn't apply to protesters and riots. And little by little, Sunday by Sunday, you kept coming back. <laughs> we didn't send out an order. You just kept showing up. The first two weeks, I preached to no one. I preached to Patricia. <laughs> which is pretty routine for me. But by the third week, all of a sudden there were people here. And then the fourth week and the next week, and here we are. You kept coming back. Why did you come back? You came back because your heart cries out to be here. This is where you live and move and have your being. You came because you're not afraid. Because God takes care of all of us. The Lord brought us back. 
little by little to worship, fellowship, ministry, Bible study, youth groups, and then this incredible week with 350 little kids running all over this place. The unanimous will of the people has expressed itself. Why not sooner? Predictions of death. Why now? Aren't we putting people in danger? The real danger in this world is spiritual, isn't it? But let's talk about that danger from the virus. 27 states have a higher death rate than California. 27 states. California has had 8,300, about 8,300 persons die. And I just got this information from the state sources yesterday. 8,300 persons have died with COVID, not necessarily from it, but with it. At least that's what we're told. And for California, the California statistic is that's 21 people out of every 100,000. That means the death rate is 0.02. people percent of people will not die from this. But there's another statistic. Half of those people who died are over 80. So if you're under 80, you have a 99.99% chance that you're going to live through this whole thing. That just does not equate to the response this society has had. Now, 270,000 people in California, about a quarter of a million, a little more than a quarter of a million die every year. 65,000 die of heart disease. 60,000 plus die of cancer. 16,000 die of stroke. 16,000 die of Alzheimer's. 14,000 die of respiratory illness. 10,000 die of diabetes. 5,000 die from liver illness. That's from last year. This year they're all going to be higher because the hospitals were shut down. Fourteen thousand people die every year from accidents. Five thousand people from suicide, and that's going higher this year as well. How could they close the hospitals when these people are in jeopardy? for something that can affect only 0.01% of the population. By the way, alcohol kills 3 million people a year. And all the liquor stores were open. I know they were open because I couldn't get any Fresca. And when I wanted to get Fresca, you know what I was told? That all the aluminum is eaten up in beer cans fact. Because the bars aren't open, the beer producers are taking all the aluminum. I want my Fresca. (laughs) 
so far this year, the death of a quarter of a million people can be traced back to smoking. Cigarettes are for sale. Alcohol is for sale everywhere. You can have all you want. You can have a run on alcohol to the point that it eats up the aluminum cans. Smoking kills a quarter of a million people. Cigarettes are available. By the way, the state had an interesting statistic. 441,000 kids under 18 will die prematurely from smoking. Almost half a million kids currently under 18 will someday die from smoking. Where's the ban on cigarettes? But here's the real issue. You know what the great killer in California is? I'll tell you what it is. The most deadly force in this state is death by medical people who do abortions. And I, I will give you the statistics of this state. 364 abortions a day. About one in four pregnancies in California ends in abortion. So every infant conceived has a one in four chance of never getting out of the womb. 88% of those abortions are with women who are not married. California has more abortions than any state in the United States. Taxpayer funded. On May 31st, 2019, Governor Newsom issued a proclamation. His proclamation was to let everyone know California's abortions were available to women from states where abortion was restricted. I'm quoting from his proclamation. California is welcoming women to come to fully exercise their reproductive rights as a model for other states to follow. We have more abortions than New York, New Jersey, we have more abortions than any state in America. Let me tell you something. Death by abortion outstrips every other kind of death. You could take all the cancer deaths and all the heart disease deaths, put them together, and they don't come to the killing of children in the womb. There's no moral high ground among leaders in this state. They've kept all the abortion clinics open through all these months. They've been deemed, along with the liquor stores, essential. So babies could continue to be slaughtered. But churches can't meet. This is the reality of a corrupt world. When babies have a one in four chance in our state of not even getting out of the womb. And hopefully, I guess, they would wish that the ones who do get out are politically correct. 
slaughter is staggering. 900,000 in this country in a year. Almost a million babies. This is a direct assault on the creative work of God, isn't it? But God overrules that. And I believe in, I know you do, that He gathers those little ones into His arms. I wrote a book, if any of you are interested, called Safe in the Arms of God. The Lord overrules the efforts of the killers and gathers the little ones to Himself. Kill people with alcohol, kill people with cigarettes, kill people with diseases because the hospitals don't function. Lock people up so that everybody's under stress and make sure churches can't meet where's the only place they could find hope and help. We will not bow to such bizarre standards. We'll follow our Lord and trust Him. In a case that went through the Supreme Court this week, Judge Alito was part of the minority opinion on whether churches could meet like casinos could meet. And his statement I thought was interesting. He said, the problem is no longer one of exigency, meaning a flu or a virus, but one of discriminatory, discriminatory treatment of places of worship. That from a member of the United States Supreme Court who sees it as nothing but discrimination. Some positive things coming out of this. The church always refines its convictions under duress. This is not a problem to be feared. This is a triumphant hour for the church to be the church. Standing for the glory of our Lord is more important in this hour than I've ever known it in my life. For His glory, we will stand and meet and worship and preach the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. We rest in peace and confidence and joy in the comfort of the truth and the comfort of the Spirit, thankful that we can bear the reproach of our Savior and our Redeemer. How wonderful it is to take some wounds for the one who took the wounds for us. To join in the fellowship of His suffering in a hostile world. Lord, may this be a, a time for Your church to rise up. Your true church, may it by its godly salt influence and its clear light of truth Separated 
itself from all that is corrupt and deceptive. Whether it be secular forces or even religious ones, may your true church rise up for your honor and your glory. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to proclaim your name, take your truth and accomplish what you will. We're grateful to carry the glory of the gospel forward in this desperate hour. And we pray that this might be a time when you look on us with grace in this country and mercy. And you let the light shine and the salt do its work in ways that we desperately need. And may your gospel reach the darkness of this day with its light. For your glory we pray. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University, where John serves as Chancellor, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. All right, here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. Should we begin when God made the whole wide world just by speaking? By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve on day number six created Adam and Eve. In the image of the beautiful Most High God told them, be fruitful and multiply Everything's yours, but that tree do not try Cause in the day you eat it, you're surely gonna die I'm sure you know the rest Yes, they failed the test And ever since then, the world has been a big mess So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this There's only one hero and his name is Jesus
notice when we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used craft to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. What does dominion mean? This is Ken Ham, co-editor of the practical book, How Do We Know the Bible is True? When God created the first two people, he made them in his image, and he gave them a purpose. Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. Yes, we've been called to have dominion over God's creation. Now, dominion, that's a word many don't like. Sometimes people think it means we can just do whatever we want to the earth. But that's not what it means. When we look to all of Scripture, we see that God loves His creation and all the creatures He's made. He formed the earth to be inhabited, and not just by us, but by a huge variety of creatures. So what does dominion mean? It means being a good steward of God's creation for God's glory and our good. Listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. Be equipped to think biblically about the world around us when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. We kick it old school. 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 Come on, come on, don't miss the latest craze. Hit it for a minute, then it's on to the next phase. Easy come, easy go, the marketers will hack it. The only change that comes. piece of bread we have to sit the holy word of god is all but dead all we need to know is right there on the pages why are we obsessed with who the guy on stage is it's the hottest dance get the latest buzzy you're gonna find out jesus wasn't very fuzzy was he? you can take the news up you can keep the flow the bible is our tool and we're here to kick it all 
made in God's image. This is Ken Ham heading up the ministry that's built a 510 foot long Noah's Ark. This week we're looking at a biblical view of dominion and caring for God's creation. Now as we talked about yesterday, we're to care for creation for God's glory and our good. The dominion mandate flies in the face of our culture. We're constantly told that humans are a blight on the planet. There are too many of us and we need to limit the population but that's not how the Bible talks about us. Only humans are made in God's image. We have unique value that the rest of creation doesn't have. Now, that doesn't mean everything else God made isn't important. It is. But it does mean we have a unique value that animals and plants don't have. Plan your visit to the Ark Encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Kids 10 and under are free in 2020 at the Ark Encounter. Plan your visit today at AnswersRadio.com. Can't beat me then 
Stewards Over God's Creation. This is Ken Ham, publisher of the Apologetics family magazine called Answers. Yesterday we learned that only humans are made in God's image. We have a unique value that nothing else in creation has. But that doesn't mean that everything else God made isn't important. When we study God's Word, we see that God loves creation. He cares for the animals and takes joy in what He's made, and we should too. Now, where to have dominion over creation? Having dominion means where to care for God's creation as stewards. He's entrusted what He's made to us. That means we should care for creation as He does and with joy. Christians should be on the front lines of environmental care because we know we have a mandate from our Creator. Get answers to your questions about science, the Bible, climate change, and so much more at AnswersRadio.com. And listen to this program again when you visit AnswersRadio.com. Spirit and the gifts are ours. 
stewarding with wisdom. This is Ken Ham, and we've produced the family-friendly Answers Bible Curriculum. All this week, we've been looking at what it means to have dominion over God's creation, where to care for creation, for God's glory and our good. But should we believe and act on every claim by environmentalists? Well, no, we shouldn't. We need to exercise godly wisdom. Yes, there are real problems that demand our attention. We're stewards. We need to care for God's creation. But many claims by environmentalists are just crying wolf or exaggerating. We need to compare everything we hear against the truth of God's word. Ask yourself, what's the worldview behind this claim? What's fact and what's interpretation? Let's make sure we're wisely stewarding creation. Do you have questions about science, the Bible, creation, and evolution? Visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. You'll find encouragement when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Yeah. He made us all, yo. Yeah. God made us all, yo. God made me and you. Sing, children. No, we He did it to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees. From lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they God they are praising. Their differences cry out. God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. Yeah. 
it says at the beginning of the book of Genesis, by he or, Yom uh, Echad, uh, right? This is the day one, right? And then it'll say that there was day two. Well, so first of all, God creates light before he creates the sun. Not a question, Mark. An exclamation point. God created light before he created the sun, moon, and stars on day four. The text is abundantly clear. Here it is in Genesis 1. God said, let there be light on the first day. And there was light. God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Remember, no sun, moon, or stars. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. End of story. You do not need to allegorize this. There was light before there were planets, sun, moon, and stars. Furthermore, please note, God considered that first day a day because he separated this light, whatever it happened to be, from darkness, and he called it a day. Second of all, how do you measure the length of a day when there is no sun and no earth? So the way that we measure an earth day is by the rotation of the earth, versus the sun, right? But how do you measure a 24-hour period in a time when hours don't exist yet and there is no basis for the, for the length of the day? Except for the verse that we just read. What determines a day? Is it the sun that tells us a day is 24 hours or is it something else? According to the verse we just read in Genesis 1, God established time. God is the standard for what makes a day a day. God is the one who assigned this period of time, morning, evening, light, darkness. That is a 24-hour period because God said so. That is why when we get to Genesis 4 and read that now God created the sun, moon, and the stars, for what purpose? Was it to determine time? No, it was so that we could mark time, so that we could have a calendar before there was printing, so that a sailor could look up in the sky and realize, okay, this is the season, I've got the stars, here's the time, the length of a day, morning and evening, without a calendar. In other words, if you read Genesis plainly, the text tells us, there was indeed light before sun, moon, and stars, but God nevertheless called that a day because he is the one who determines time, not the planets he gave for us to mark time. However, this raises a most excellent question. What exactly was that light? God said, let there be light, and it was good. Well, let's continue through the rest of the book of Genesis. God created the heavens and the earth, said it was very good. He put two human beings in a garden with a river, with a couple of trees, and they enjoyed fellowship with God, and it was all swell until the fall. Then throughout the rest of the Bible, we see God's redemptive plan to redeem sinners because we have lost paradise. Jesus Christ died so that we could regain paradise. And then we see a description at the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. It is an absolute inclusio. It's bookends telling us this is what it looked like in paradise before it was lost. 
This is what it's going to look like when paradise is regained. To Revelation 21 we go. I saw no temple in this paradise, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Who is the light that is going to lighten paradise regained? The light of the world, the same light that illumined a paradise before we lost it in Genesis 3. A simple, plain reading of the text explains everything, and we do not need to import supposed scientific ideas to compromise what is a clear historical, non-allegorical approach to reading the Bible. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is worship? Perhaps you have thought of worship as singing worship songs, maybe going to church, reading your Bible, prayer. These are certainly ways we worship God, but true worship is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Earlier in Romans, Paul talked about those who worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. But Jesus said, you shall worship, meaning bow before the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. God is merciful, forgiving your sins through faith in Jesus. He has offered himself as an atoning sacrifice, so you must offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Turning from sin and living a life of purity and obedience, submitting to the will of the Father as Jesus did, this is worship. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. How do we know what God's will is? By reading the Bible. There Jesus says that the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for he alone is worthy of our worship when we understand the text. Yes, I am. I was a lying thief. 
But everything's in the past. Yes. You can say to a judge, Judge, I robbed that bank and shot the guard, but it was in the past. What I just said... It depends on what you do about after. How can you fix robbing a bank and shooting the guard? What do you become a good person after? Okay, tell the judge that. Okay, I'm just going to follow your logic. Okay. Judge, I robbed the bank and I shot the guard, but I'm going to be a good person. The judge would say, so you should, now you're going to jail. Doing good can't wash away your crimes against civil war. And being good won't wash away your crimes against God. It's another thing that may help you. And I'm coming from where you're coming from. I'm not condemning you. I'm just trying to help you understand. If you look up the word good in the dictionary, you know what it'll give you? Over 41 different, different definitions. 41. Number one says moral excellence. When God says good, he's talking about moral excellence. You and I are not morally excellent. Do you believe in Jesus? I do. Jesus said this. This is your problem. He said there is none good but God. This is Mark 10, verse 17. He said there's none good but God. Only God is good. Who's lying? You or Jesus? Me? No, you're not good. I believe I'm good. No, you're not. To my extent. That's right. Everyone thinks they're good. I thought I was good before I was a Christian. In fact, the Bible says most every man will proclaim his own goodness. And the reason I'm trying to knock the goodness out of you is to show you're a sinner and you need God's mercy. Because you'll never say, God, I'm a sinner, I'm heading for hell, while you think you're good. You know what the Bible says of us? There's a heart that is deceitfully wicked. That's what the Bible says. Deceitfully wicked. It even says this, for all is an unclean thing and all our good deeds are as filthy leprous rags in the sight of God. That's how high a standard is. And on Judgment Day, when you stand before God, He's going to judge you by your thought life. And if you've lusted, you've committed adultery. If you've hated someone, you are a murderer. Have you honored your parents? Always? Are you Not always, but I do honor them as much as I okay. can. Okay. You've dishonored them in a huge way. You know how? By being a lying thief. Can you imagine if we put headlines in the paper, Kira admits to being a lying thief, that dishonors your parents' good name. Every time you sin, you dishonor your parents. When you're disobedient, you dishonor your parents. When you cover something, you dishonor You're violating God's law when you lust or hate or lie or steal. And every time you sin, you're storing up God's wrath. That's what the Bible teaches. In fact, it says, we're enemies of God in our minds through wicked words. Have you ever used God's name in vain? I have. Okay, this blasphemy. And instead of using a full letter filter word beginning with S, you've taken the holy name of God and used it as a substitute. Now, all I'm doing is trying to diagnose the disease so I can give you the cure. Why do you think you're healthy? You don't want a cure. What are you talking about? Get out of my face. But if you realize you've got a terminal disease, then you'll say, give me the cure. So right now, you've got a knowledge of sin. You've sinned against God. He's angry at your sin. His wrath abides upon you. You need his mercy. And God provided a Savior, Jesus, who died on the cross. Not for good people, because there aren't any, but for sinners who are heading for hell. Once you realize that, he did that for me while I was a sinner. He rose again and defeated death so I could have everlasting life. Then you need to get before him and say, God, forgive me. I'm not good. I'm a sinner. I need your mercy. And you'll be born again. you pass from death to life, from darkness to light, and God will open the eyes of your understanding and give you a new heart with new desires. In fact, this is what he says. I'll take my law and write it upon your heart and cause you to walk in my statutes. In other words, you will love to do what pleases God without him even telling you to. Because he's given you a new heart with your desire. And that's being born again. That's when you're native.
from the Beam Waters and find them on the beamwaters.com and also Living Waters on YouTube. Check them out. And what I'm going to do now is going to play another song for you.
Get Social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. For Truth Be Told Radio, uh, join us next time on Sundays 2 to 4 usually, and that's when it's live. And also, gonna go out with Yancy and Friends of the VRBLE. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.